please turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. The third chapter of Revelation. Tonight, after a long delay and absence from these parts, we return to the letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor sent by the Lord Jesus himself. Tonight, our consideration has to do with the church in Sardis. Please follow as I read the first six verses of Revelation chapter 3. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he that has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name that you live, and you're dead. Be you watchful, and establish the things that remain, which were ready to die. For I have found no works of yours perfected before my God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and did hear, and keep it, and repent. If, therefore, you shall not watch, I will come as a thief, and you shall not know what hour I will come upon you. But you have a few names in Sardis that did not defile their garments, and they shall walk with me in white. For they are worthy. He that overcomes shall thus be arrayed in white garments. And I will in no wise blot his name out of the book of life. And I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Please again, let's pray and ask the Lord's help. Lord, I ask you to bathe these words with the dew of heaven. I ask you, our Father, not to give to our church according to its deserving, but that you tonight would overcome our unworthiness and speak unto us and use your word to make us holy, to make us your children indeed. We pray, O Lord, that you would give help to your servant that you would use the arm of flesh to get glory to the might of your spirit, that you, O Lord, would take up the slack left in our feebleness, that you would in mercy give heed not to our merits, but in compassion and forgiveness to our sin, you would give heed to the merits of your Son and the great need that we sinners have to hear his word. O Lord, now, for Christ's sake, you, the God of our life's hope, come near in the preaching of your word and work great things in the hearts of those who hear. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We have considered thus far in this lengthy series four of the churches of Asia Minor. 
We concerned ourselves, first of all, with the letter to the Ephesians, who had left their first love and warned by our Lord that they must rekindle that love or he would remove from them their very light, which constituted the truth of God in their midst and the very life of God among them. Then we looked at that poor but rich church in Smyrna, who through the world's eyes were the offscouring of the world, unworthy and little and insignificant, but to the Lord who had not one negative thing to say about them or to them. They were precious, and he promised them life for their endurance against the world and the devil. Then we earlier even than this particular series, almost a year before, had preached a sermon on the letter to the church at Pergamum or Pergamus, a church that had held to orthodox belief but had become invaded with the world and a church that was hardly distinguishable between Christ and the world. They looked like the world and thought like the world and acted like the world and were actually practicing the things that those were practicing from whom they had apparently or supposedly been saved. And the Lord had great warnings for them. Then we considered the letter to the church in Thyatira, the longest of all the letters to perhaps the most insignificant in terms of the size and influence of the cities of all the seven. He cited that the Thyatiran church had actually increased its works so that the works in the latter end were greater than the earlier. And yet they had a severe problem. They had tolerated heresy and immorality in their church. There had been a teacher who was professing truth but teaching horrendous error, teaching to practice fornication and the worship of idols. And the church had allowed it to go on, undealt with, on and on and on perpetually. And so the Lord had stirred them to remember what he would do to those who were doing such and those that were accompanying and tolerating such. Well, then tonight we come to consider the fifth church in this list of those churches located in almost a circle in Asia Minor, the church in the city of Sardis. And there's no more appropriate and graphic picture in the whole Bible of much of the evangelical church of our day than the church in Sardis, a self-deceived church frolicking in external success, boasting of its buildings, its budgets, its baptisms, its bodies, many among whom think that they are actually in the midst of, as they say, the greatest revival in the church's history. If you were to listen to some among evangelicals today, it would be as though there is nothing but right in the church and we are experiencing the greatest and most unprecedented outpouring of the Holy Spirit known to man in history. Some are actually convinced that the Lord is moving in unusual ways and that the evidence is the size and the vibrancy of their churches and all their programs and all their activities and all their great possessions. Now, many of them are not thoughtful of the fact that many of the possessions that they have they owe to the bank 
Many of them do not think that they're in great debt and that if the congregation were to leave, there'd be somebody left holding a large mortgage. But they look at all the external trappings of apparent success and see themselves as blessed of God and having the smile of God. Great choirs, huge, talented, and in many cases, professionally paid orchestras leading the worship of the church. Big budget youth ministries focusing upon all manner of fun and frolic, keeping kids interested in church by providing ski trips and great banquets and swimming parties and uh, trips to Europe and trips to Hawaii and all manner of wonderful rewarding of them for being faithful to Sunday afternoon choir practice for a year. Your pastor has been the first-hand witness of such a scheme in which once a year a youth choir numbering over a hundred would be taken at the expense of the church in many cases uh, to Canada, to Colorado, to England, to the Bahamas, to Hawaii, in order to sing and give concerts in marketplaces around those places in which the choir director stated that he would never be a part of one of those trips that went forth in order to be a witness to people verbally of the gospel because, in his words, that ain't my bag. But he did want to reward the kids for their faithfulness to the choir for a year by taking them on such trips. And so it was typical of seeing a bunch of young people, teenagers, high school students, thrilled with their choir, thrilled with the fun they had, thrilled with the hot dogs they ate in the church fellowship hall during, before, and after worship, thrilled with the activities that were typical of their life, never going to church prayer meeting because the church provided fun things for the teenagers instead of prayer meeting, not attending church unless they had a part in the choir, not listening during the preaching, but actually sitting in the choir loft, passing notes, punching and jabbing, looking forward to the time when they could get out and have some fun at the latest backyard swimming party. That was the norm. And in the midst of that, the competition between the churches to see who could have the biggest and the best and the most recently uh, modern approach to so-called Christian music. In some cases, young people's youth directors bringing in high-powered so-called Christian rock groups to perform on a Friday night in the church gymnasium to gather kids from all over the town in order to keep the Christian faith rolling. That is the look in many places, even in America today. But our Lord would speak to those churches and say, One thing thou lackest, with all your getting, you have not gotten wisdom. You do not fear God. There is no presence of God in your midst. The Lord has departed. Your lampstand is not glowing with the truth of God. The central focus and concern of your church is not the glory of God, but the glory of man. The vibrant presence of the living God imparting life to you and through you to others is absent. And so the Lord would not agree 
with the assessment of many in our day that the church is sound and the church is good and the church is blessed. And the church in Sardis is a graphic picture of that situation in our day. Now, I'm not speaking primarily about Rome and her pomp and her apostate power and her presumed might and strength as she struts in her arrogance, as she marches in her robes, as she presumes that she has the best that God has to offer, that she is the mother church, that she is God's church, the church of Christ in the world with his full authority. I'm not even referring to her primarily. She's bad enough. But the Protestant wing of Christendom is like the church in Sardis, by and large, having a name that it lives, but it's dead. And so our Lord addresses himself to such a church. And I believe there is ample relevance in this message to Sardis to us today. I want to say as your pastor, it is not my conviction that you as a church would fit clearly the description of Sardis. If I believed such, I would spend weeks and weeks on this sermon, on this particular passage. But I do know that you have the potential of becoming like Sardis. And I know that some in here may well be in the condition of this large congregation in Asia Minor and have already gotten to the place that though among us it appears you are alive in Christ because you're here, you profess to be a Christian, that if the truth were known about the true condition of your heart, we would confess with the Lord, you have a reputation that you're alive, but in actuality you're dead. And not knowing the hearts of you, not being privy to the inner workings of your life, I preach this as one who trembles at the possibility that under the sound of my voice may well be sung who would fit in the church of Sardis and be the accurate recipients of our Lord's warnings to such. So I trust God will use it to preserve any of us who would be on the brink of moving into that realm of spiritual living death and that it would be a rebuke to any and an eye-opener to any who have fallen asleep and are nigh on to being lost forever. So I've divided the message up tonight into three sections. And here they are. I'll state them in the form of sentences, and then we'll consider them as far as we can get tonight. In the first place, Jesus Christ is the final judge and arbiter of the church's condition and destiny. The first point that stands out as we examine this portion of Scripture is a crucial point. And it is this, that Jesus Christ is the final judge and arbiter of the church's condition and destiny. In the second place, not only is Christ the final judge and arbiter of the church's condition and destiny, but another point stands out in this passage. The church is commanded and permitted to escape the threatened judgment. The church is commanded and permitted to escape the threatened judgment. And then in the third place, the faithful 
are promised the highest reward. The faithful are promised the highest reward. Let us then consider in the first place this very crucial fact that Jesus Christ is the final judge and arbiter of the church's condition and destiny. Now, why do we say that? How can we see that he is such? And it's important to know that he is such, so we'll not consider that anyone else is. It is not the church that determines its condition and is able accurately to state its position. And it is not the church or anyone else who is in a position to determine the destiny of the church based on its condition. It's Christ. But how do we know? Well, there are at least three ways. We can observe this fact in the following three ways. In the first place, we can see that because of his ability to judge the church, he is the final judge and arbiter of her condition and destiny. And this ability is seen as it is the formula in all these letters in the phrase in verse 1, I know your works. The Lord states to the Sardis church, just as he has stated to all the others, I know your works. So the ability of our Lord to judge its condition and be the final arbiter of its destiny is seen in his omniscience. He knows everything. Nothing escapes his eye. He knows all. He looks on the heart. That's why some of you are trembling tonight. That's why some of you dread what I may preach. You're afraid you may be the one to whom I address these words of warning. You are concerned about what you and the Lord know concerning you. Now, he knows things about you that you don't know. And those are the two sides to this principle of his omniscience that are so important. The one side is, you know enough about you to know that the Lord has a right to slash the hammer upon your head. You know that if the Lord were tonight to unveil all that you and he know about you, you would be put to shame in front of us. Many of you hope we never find out what you already know. Will you hope that you can change until you could then present yourself as transparent among us with a clear conscience and out without being afraid? You look forward to the day when you can look us in the eye and not be embarrassed and ashamed and feel that you're living a double life trying to desperately cover up reality while you do the externals to keep us off your back. The Lord and you know those things, but there's another side to his omniscience, which is quite sobering and frightening. He knows things about us that we don't know. Some of us think we are not in danger of his rebukes and his chastenings. Some of us feel quite comfortable in our religion. Some of us have evaluated that we've made progress. We have things going our way. Many of us on very frivolous assumptions that have decided that Nothing bad is going on in our lives, so the Lord must not be too angry with me. We do know areas of sin. We do know unmortified sins in our lives, and we do know things that we're not dealing with as we ought, and yet it doesn't appear the Lord's raised a hand against us. And so we have this thought that we, as it were, 
are living and we are prospering. But the Lord knows things we may not be knowledgeable of. He sees what's real. He sees things we don't see. And he's the one, because of his omniscience, the only one who can see it all, who will make the final determination as to what our true condition is and what our destiny corresponding to that condition will be. But the second thing we note in understanding that Christ is the final judge and arbiter of the church's condition and destiny, not only seen in his ability, but also the basis for his judgment. The ability of his judgment found in his omniscience, but the basis for his judgment found in his impartiality. He's omniscient, but he's also impartial. He says, you have a name that you live, but you're dead. You see, he is not judging on the basis of what they or others think about them. He is utterly unimpressed and unswayed by the judgment of man. He does not judge according to his eyes, as the prophet said. He'll not judge according to his eyes, but what he hears, he'll judge. The Lord himself taught us that he acts from what his father teaches him. He acts in concert with God's judgment. He judges righteously according to the truth. He acts according to what he knows to be true. He has no interest in what all the voices around him are saying. He has no interest in majority rule. He has no interest in the judgment of men. He is unimpressed with them. He is uninterested in them. Others' conclusions are utterly irrelevant to him. He judges based on the truth of God and the standard of God. And that never changes. And he never flexes from that judgment in the least. The Lord Jesus Christ is utterly, perfectly, consummately impartial in his judgment. And that's the reason he's the final arbiter and the final judge of the church's condition and destiny. That's why we should fear him and be greatly concerned about our dealings with him. Because the way he's going to judge is not going to be like a blind man who sees things wrong but pretends they're not wrong. Who sees things out of line continually in the church but turns the head and tries to ignore them. Our Lord Jesus doesn't do that. Men do that. Men misjudge. Men overreact or underreact. Men apply a wrong standard, perhaps too strict a standard, perhaps not strict enough a standard. But the Lord doesn't. He makes no errors. And when he judges, it's purely on the basis of revealed truth, on the standard of God's perfect righteousness. And that's the way it's going to be judged. And he's utterly impartial. It matters not to him what a church thinks of itself. It matters not to him how noble and great the church appears in the world. It matters not to him how many of the people of God are offended at his judgment. He doesn't care what it's going to cost in terms of flack and fallout. If it means everybody's going to quit the church, that is not the final judge. The Lord doesn't evaluate the cost, first of all, of his judgment. He evaluates the integrity of the name of God. He's not so consumed with what it's going to cost him when he judges the church. 
He's consumed for the zeal of the house of God, its purity and the integrity of his own name. And so the basis of his judgment is seen in its impartiality in that he judges as he sees righteously and not as he might be swayed by man's judgment. But in the third place and finally, Jesus Christ is seen to be the final judge and arbiter of the church's condition and destiny in his right to be so. He has a right to be the final judge and arbiter because simply he's God. Who is this that is addressing this church? Now notice in verse 2. He says, be thou watchful. Now that literally means wake up and watch. Become watchful. He is addressing somebody that has fallen asleep on the job. It is as though he's walking into a room in which a man is supposed to be guarding uh, a store of jewels. And the fellow is snoring over in the corner. Or worse than that, this particular fellow is in a coma. He is overcome in a death sleep. And the Lord is saying, wake up and watch. That's the address that's given. But read further. And establish or strengthen the things that remain which were ready to die. For I have found no works of yours perfected before my God. Now, that little phrase, my God, in this passage, I believe and and have the support of many commentators in believing, is a reference to the intimate relationship between Christ and his Father. This face-to-face relationship that only the Lord Jesus has with God the Father. This is not my God in the sense of what we would say when we say my God. When he spoke to the disciples after the resurrection, I ascend to my God and your God, to my Father and your Father. He didn't say to our God and our Father, because there is a sense in which God is his Father in a way that he is not our Father. And there is a sense in which God is his God in a way that he is not our God. But there's a sense in which he's our God and our Father as well. But it's not identical to the relationship that Christ has with him. And here he draws himself in a very close proximity to the God who judges. My God. Now notice what he said in the first verse. These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, what does Christ have in his hands? Well, we believe that this phrase, the seven spirits of God, is the revelation apocalyptic symbolic phrase, which represents just as the seven churches represents in their seven numerological perfection, all the fullness of the ministry of the spirit of God in the church. The Lord Jesus has within his hands All the work and the fullness of the Holy Spirit. That's in his hands. He, by his own will, dispenses the ministry and the life and the judgment and the vitality and the help and the presence of God the Spirit among the churches. He has God in the practical application of God among the congregation in his own hands. The Spirit of God is God in our midst. 
How does God appear among us? In the Spirit. How do we know God? By the Spirit. How do we see God? Through the Spirit. We are a spiritual community. We worship God in spirit and in truth. And it is all of that which resides in the hand of Jesus Christ. He has in His hands the multiplied ministry, life, and aid of nothing less than God among us. It is in the hand of Christ to distribute to the churches all of God that they're going to have and that they're going to know. The Lord Jesus determines that. Now, how in the world could a mere man have such authority? Well, he couldn't. That is because this one is not a mere man. He is the God-man. He holds in his almighty hand the ministry of the fullness of the Holy Spirit And he holds the seven stars, who are the angels of the churches. Those things that represent the ministry of the word of God to the church. Tonight, you who sit here having difficulty heeding the word of God are at the disposal of Christ as to how much of it you'll hear. It is Christ who decides whether you'll have a pastor. It is Christ who decides what kind of pastor you'll have. It is Christ who decides whether to meet him in his study and help him or not. It is Christ who determines what he's going to preach. It is Christ that determines how well he's going to preach. It is Christ who determines whether you're going to be able to get here and your body's going to allow you to be present. It is Christ that determines whether you can understand what's said, whether you comprehend it, whether your heart will receive it. You're in Christ's hands. The full ministry of God in his spirit and in his word rests in the hand of Christ. He says, the one that's speaking to you in Sardis is the one who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars in his hands. No less than God himself. He can withdraw the word from this church as soon as he decides to. And it's over. He can withdraw his spirit and we perish. You all have witnessed it in the flesh. People die and you can't bring them back. God takes away their breath and they perish, we read in the Psalms. They all depend on Him for their carnal breath. How much more are we sensitive to our dependence on God for spiritual breath? But the moment that God, the Spirit, is withdrawn from a church, the church ceases to be the church of Christ. And it is Jesus who will determine that moment. At any time, brethren, the Lord Jesus Christ can withdraw His Spirit, can cool His Word, can cover it over and remove it. From any church he determines to do so. Does that not make us fear and tremble at his feet? You see, he goes further. Who is it that's going to come upon them? He says in verse 3 in the middle. If you therefore shall not watch, I will come as a thief. And you shall not know what hour I will come upon you. Then he says down in verse 5. In the second part, I will in no wise blot his name out of the book. He has the ability to blot out a name from the book of life or to see that it stays in the book of life. And then he says, I will confess his name before my father. 
once again drawing that intimate relationship between himself and the Father and placing within his own prerogative the privilege of coming upon the church in judgment, of blotting out a name from the book of life, of confessing a man before God the Father. Who has all that power and prerogative? Nobody but the Lord Jesus Christ. So as God, in his all-consummate deity, Jesus Christ has the right to be and is the final judge and arbiter of the church's condition and destiny. But in the second place, having come to see clearly that it is the Lord who will determine our standing and our destiny, we must then move on to see that the church is commanded and permitted to escape the threatened judgment. Now, there is judgment threatened by the Lord to this church, but the Lord, in the midst of this threat, gives his customary overture of mercy. He grants space for repentance. It is God's way. You see, if a church is going to be faithful to its charge to faithfully represent Jesus Christ in the world and to its own, a church must be patient with sinners. A church must be honest and rebuke sinners, but it must always grant overtures of repentance. A church must never take the position of determining finally that a man is not privileged to repent. A church must take the position the Lord takes. Turn. Repent. He commands them to do so because that's his customary way, granting the overture of repentance. Well, let's examine this concept of the church's command and permission to escape the threatened judgment. First of all, we notice the general condition of the church described. The general condition described. And that description comes in the following forms. As we've already stated in the first verse, I know your works, that you have a name, that you live and are dead. Now, in spite of your reputation, he says, your name, you have a reputation that you're alive, but you're dead. Now, it would help for us to know a bit of the history of the city of Sardis to understand the significance of this statement. The city of Sardis was perhaps the most widely renowned city in all of this section of the world in the B.C. years. Way back before the Roman Empire, before the Persians, before Cyrus the Great came, the great Sardis uh, citadel sat upon this virtually impregnable hill and was utterly, perfectly defended and no one could bring her down. And she lived for centuries as a greatly renowned city against none whom none would come. And yet one night, King Cressus, who was noted to be the greatest king in the world at that stage, at least among those who were familiar with Sardis, went to bed, secure that the Persian legions outside the city would, have, would make no harm against the city, and woke up the next morning to find them occupying the city and having overthrown it. Later on, it happened again under Antiochus the Great, and Sardis became a has-been power. When the Romans came to power, Sardis was not deemed to be important at all and had lost its esteem. And yet many in Sardis, it is known in history, still thought of themselves as big stuff. 
We have on record as late as 26 A.D., the city of Sardis sending representatives to the, to the emperor at Rome, asking that he let them be voted among uh, the cities that they were going to specially honor with the posturing of emperor worship. And they were passed over, and Smyrna was given the privilege, and it was a humiliating defeat for the Sardis people who still thought of themselves in their past grandeur. And they were known to be a people that lived in the past, and they loved to point back at what they were, and as though they still were. And in that kind of context, the Lord speaks to this church in Sardis at the end of the first century and says, though you have a reputation of greatness, you're just about in the same shape as the city is in compared to its reputation. It was it used to be great, but it's not great. It's dead. It may have a name that it's alive, but at, at a moment's notice, someone who wants to, if he has enough thought and power, can come in and take this city. Back in the old days, they had this impregnable rock. And they thought nobody could scale this cliff on this side. And the only entrance to the city was on the south side through a, a small entrance. And it was easy. A child could guard that entrance. An army couldn't come in. But what they didn't understand was that th this rock, so-called, was actually highly and deeply compacted mud which crumbled away over the years and over the centuries. Now, the site of Sardis has nothing but a few remaining ruins and it's much lower than it used to be because the very impregnable, impregnable rock they used to stake their confidence on has eroded and disappeared. Now, the Lord, back in those days, it's almost like an, an equal analysis. In the old days, the city of Sardis sat on this hill and said, nobody can touch us. But the Lord knew that they were just one king away from utter destruction. They never thought it. Went to sleep, and we know that Cyrus and his army came in at night like a thief. And the king woke up the next morning, and the city was already fallen. Nobody expected it. They didn't watch. They didn't look at that side of the city. They didn't think anybody could come up. Antiochus the Great sent his army in one at a time up the cliff all night long and conquered the city. Because they had a little watch out here on the, on the only entrance. They based their confidence in their past glory. Nobody had ever been able to attack them and throw them down before. And here they were, sleeping on the job, not watching. That's the picture. And the church is being seen by the Lord in the same way that this city's history testified against it in spite of your reputation you're dead you have not the life that you believe now notice the lord is not stating that their physical life is out apparently this church was doing fairly well by man's judgment and yet what they didn't recognize was that the life of god was departed spiritually speaking they were dead. There was nothing there. And despite all that they thought made them be alive, they weren't alive. Then in the second place, the Lord describes their condition by saying, none of your works is full. I, I've never I've not seen any of your works perfected before my God in the eyes of God, the judge with complete corroboration between God, the father and God, the son. There are no works in Sardis that could be viewed as having been established. Now, I've labored to try to put this into, into a terminology that you could see. What the Lord is saying, I believe, is that there has not been established in the Sardis church a pattern of consistent obedience to God. 
You're not able to be considered a church that has a pattern well developed and entrenched of growing holiness. You're not hitting on all cylinders. The engine ain't running right and never has. You see, it's not the same as it used to run on all cylinders, but there's one now missing. This church has never gotten up yet. It bought a new car, a used car that had a motor problem and it's never got it fixed. This church is still driving an old jalopy and it started as a jalopy and it's not fixed anything completely. Oh, it's had a few mechanics check out this and work on that and replace the plug here. But the mist is still there. The church has never gotten to a point in which as an army of God, it is known by its testimony of integrity and righteousness and practice so that the city would look at it and say one thing about those people. They're the people of God. They don't compromise truth. When these people give you their word, they keep it. When these people do work in the community, they act like Christians. Sardis had not arrived at such a point. None of their works were complete. This is contrasted with Thyatira. When the Lord said, your latter works are better than the first. But, but Sardis, that's not the case. Their latter works are no better than the first. They've not gotten anything well established and well strengthened and well deposited in the name of Christ. Apparently, based on verse 4, this church had divided loyalties in its heart. Look at verse 4 with me. He says, you have a few names in Sardis that did not defile their garments. So apparently, this concept of defiling garments is the heart of the issue. The vast majority of the people in the church in Sardis have defiled their garments. A few have not. Well, what does that bring up in, in our thinking? Well, turn with me back to the book of Jude, just a couple of pages back. Jude is trying to help us minister to those that we know who are in danger and trouble spiritually. And in verse 22 of Jude, that one chapter... The apostle says to us, on some, <coughs> have mercy, who are in doubt. And some, save, snatching them out of the fire. You see, these are people that you, they're, just, they're in the fire. They, they're so close to final wrath and judgment that, that they're on the brink of utter disaster in their soul. Save them, snatching them out of the fire. And on some, have mercy with fear. That means there's some you're going to deal with. You better be careful because they have something associated with them that will endanger you. <clears throat> and what is that something? Why should you be trembling and fearful as you even have communication with these? Hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. As you deal with some who are nigh on to destruction, you're going to be getting close to defilement yourself just by associating with them. And what you've got to do is when you approach them, you have to hate the evidences of pollution and filth upon them. If you don't hate this pollution upon them, you're going to get caught with the same thing. Be very careful that you don't begin to become ensnared in the sins of others with whom you're dealing. You must come with a perspective that you hate the defilements, the garment that's spotted by the flesh. Now here, this word garment was known to be the inner garment next to the body. And this was the garment that would 
that would accept any of the sores and the drain from putrefying sores off a body, and you think about the oozing of the sores onto this garment, and you don't want to have, you don't touch it. And what he's describing here is the garment spotted by the flesh. He's, dis- he's talking about a, a person who professes Christ whose life is so impregnated with the diseases of various unmortified sins in his life that he is spotted with like leprosy, with like oozing sores by that which is associated with this world and not by the things of Christ. The contrast is drawn in Sardis between those whose garments are defiled and those who are arrayed in white garments. That's the contrast. You either are arrayed in white garments or your garments are defiled. What's the condition of the church in Sardis? Their garments are defiled, stained. And we're to hate even the spotting of the, by the flesh. We're not to love or, or, or be comfortable around those in our midst whose lives bear the mark of the infections of the world. You are not as a church to allow a worldly man to feel comfortable in your presence being worldly. It's sin for you to let men think they're doing well while you tolerate uncleanness in them that you know about and don't rebuke. You're not helping them. By letting a man who has fallen into all sorts of temptation get by with a shallow joke in your presence. You ought not to tolerate such a thing. You ought to look him straight in the eye and say, man, if I were in your shape, I wouldn't joke about anything. It's a lot easier, isn't it, on your place of business to be offended. And as many have testified here, it bothers the heart of a Christian to hear the name of the Lord spoken blasphemously in his presence. It grieves our soul. But brethren, what about one of your brethren who has a spot on his life? And you let him act around you as though there are no problems because you want him to be comfortable. You're hoping to win him. You're hoping not to offend him. But what are you doing? You're helping secure him in his sin. Because if he can get along with the fellowship without the rebuke of countenance and the raised eyebrow and a, vo- and a word of warning, he's going to gain confidence in his sin. You must hate that garment. And you must deal with it. These people apparently had still remaining divided loyalties between a testimony for Christ on the one hand and a heart's infection of the world and its things on the other. Their garments were defiled. And that's why their works had not come to be fulfilled. You see, a lot of folks and a lot of churches start out and hear the gospel and they pray for holiness and they start working toward doing right but they don't radically remove the things of this world's influence that can choke off their faith. They want to have both. They do, they do want the best of God, but they also want the best of the world. And what they think is that they can juggle the two and maintain their equilibrium. But what happens? All too often what happens is that the cares of this world And the pursuit of riches chokes off the word. The same word that they loved in the beginning. The same word that they heard and received in the beginning. The word they testified to believing when they joined the church. The body of faith which they embraced when they embraced the confession. 
But what have they done? They've allowed those little foxes to live in the vineyard until they've spoiled the grapes. They've not dealt with the little things. The things got bigger. They saw a change in a mole. They didn't get it tested. They didn't get a biopsy done. And they've let it grow into a raging cancer. They saw some evidence of, of a spot. And they didn't eradicate it and excise it. They allowed themselves to try to play both ends against the middle. And now they have Jesus Christ looking on them and saying, You've died. You're dead. You see what happens? The reason some of you have yet to get to that place where you can have some mark of consistent holy living. You can't hit on all cylinders. You can't go 24 hours with consistent prayer, with consistent Bible reading, with consistent behavior. You have not mortified all sorts of external. Some of you are still fighting with basic immorality. A shameful thing in the kingdom of God. And thinking, well, it's unmortified sin. We all have sin. But some of your sins are of the most heinous kind that you're tolerating in your heart and you're spotted by the garment of the flesh and you're defiled and the Lord says your works are not perfected. You see, the reason you're not getting off high center, the reason you're not making progress is because you're still allowing yourself to wear this spotted garment. You're not getting rid of stuff. You're not dealing radically with it. And what's the long-term result? Spiritual death. You're asleep, he says. You're dead. Your works are not perfected. And he says, wake up. Be thou watchful, in verse 2. And literally, they are asleep in spiritual things. Become watchful. You're not watchful. You're not laboring in your prayers. Oh, you may be doing the minimum. Brethren, I tell you again, the minimum prayers will not survive this world. It's too much. The enemy is too mighty and wily. He's going to bring your city down. You must be vigilant in your watchings. Watching thereunto unto prayer. That's what the scriptures say. Why? Because we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. And they're out to devour your souls. But some of you are sleeping. You're not hiding the word in your heart so that you'll not sin against God. You're not keeping your heart above all things, for out of it are the issues of life. You're letting stuff roll over you and past you and enter your eyes and your ears and your mind. You're not guarding the gates to your city. The city is about to fall because you're not guarding it. You're unstirred. You're unmoved. You're unaffected by the things of the Spirit. Your affections for Christ are almost lost. Your response to preaching is negligible at best. Your love of the brethren is missing. There's no evidence that you care about anybody but yourself. You never go beyond the norm and the convenient to minister to any others. The scripture says if you don't love your brethren whom you have seen, how can you love God whom you haven't seen? So the question is, are you a Christian? That's the issue. If you don't love your brethren, you're not saved. Where are you? And yet some fall asleep in this and can go a long time without being broken and frightened by it. So the Lord graciously comes and shakes you and says, wake up. Wake up. 
Some here are worse than the pagans who, when they sin, do it by principle. They sin because they think what they do is okay. They're not sinning against their conscience. You're sinning against your conscience. You know better. You know the truth about what's moral and what's not. Some of your pagan friends don't know that. They think what they do is normal. They think it's okay. You know better. So when you commit the things they commit, you're in worse shape in one sense than they're in. And the judgment will be greater. God have mercy upon us in this point. Asleep in spiritual things. Now you see, the Lord said, wake up. You know what many doctors recommend when you've had a blow to the head? Don't let him sleep. Don't let the guy go to sleep. He may never wake up. Keep him awake. Walk him. Keep him moving. Keep him awake. That's what the Lord's doing to the patient here. Shake yourself. Wake up. You don't know how near final death you are. Take the things that remain and strengthen them. There are a few little things remaining. There's a little life, I think. And I think I hear a pulse. But you're in a deep coma. Wake up and watch. That's what the Lord is describing as the condition of this church. Now, there's one other thing, though, in the condition described. There are rare and small exceptions. He said you're dead, your works are not perfected, you're asleep in spiritual things. But fourthly, he says, there are some exceptions. Very rare, very small. He says, regarding their condition, be watchful in verse 2 and establish the things that remain and were ready to die. Apparently, it isn't all lost. It's not all dead. There's enough left in you that you can get your body into the church building and hear preaching. There's enough left that you can read your Bible. Your eyes aren't blind. You can still pick it up with your hands. You're not paralyzed. You don't have to ask somebody to come read it to you. You're not, you're not beyond the ability to see the words. You don't have to have folks come into your wheelchair and read. Into, you don't have to use tapes. You can still view it. You've got a little left. It's not all lost. You have within your own hands the ability to attend the means of grace. And there's enough left in you that you know you're wrong. You know you've got a problem. You'd like to see it healed. So, the Lord says, strengthen that which remains or establish it. You see, nothing's been established. Some of you in this room, I believe, well may be among those who have never yet nailed it down that you belong to Christ and you're going to follow him to the death. You know, what, if, what we've done in our reaction to easy believism and decisionism could produce a danger on the other side. We distrust those that take a stand in public and say, I will follow Jesus. And yet the Bible is full of men who make public vows, who commit themselves inward in the presence of other people and are bound by that public commitment. And I believe there's a place for it. I'm not sure how to do it without leading into shallow and easy believism, and it tr makes me worry about it and be afraid of how do we do it. It's one of the things we encourage these yearly testimonies, make you stand up and identify yourself. Stick your flag to the mast. Make us know whose side you're on. Take a stand in public. We have a generation that doesn't like to make commitments. We don't get, want to get tangled with other people's schedules. We don't want to have them expect anything. You know what men will do in our culture? They won't give their wives much because they're afraid she'll start expecting it. Now I have to keep doing it. 
wives are afraid to serve too much at home or the gal get lazy and start presuming she's supposed to, so she keeps back some. So, he, so she won't get, get him spoiled and he won't expect. We don't want to get preoccupied with somebody else's agenda. We guard ourselves. We protect ourselves. We don't want to get committed. We're afraid to stand up and say, I do. I will. I'm committed. I'm yours for life. We don't like the words marriage for life. What if, uh, what if it doesn't last? Well, then you broke your vow. That's what, that's what it is. Does that mean don't vow? I want you to vow. I want you to make a promise. I want all of us to be able to come to your house and look you in the eye and say, you promised in my presence before God. I don't want you to relieve yourself of that means of grace and that restraint upon your wretched, wandering heart. I don't want you young men to wait until you found Miss Perfect with whom you have lived for 18 years before you get married to her. Some of you have that attitude. I don't want you gals to wait until the guy not only has ridden in on like a knight on shining, in shining armor on a white stallion, but he stood there for three or four years on the horse. So you could examine him in and out and check the horse and everything else and then maybe suggest possibly you could get married to the fella. Let me tell you this. Someday you're going to marry a sinner. I don't, if you get married at all. However long you wait, the last one you pick, the guy you finally submit to, he's going to have problems. And he's going to cause you problems. You want to get married, just get used to that now. Minimize them, but you marry somebody that's got problems because that's all you're going to have. You, you gals and you guys do the same thing. Quit being so Mr. High Up and Mr. False Pious. Marry somebody like yourself. Well, I'm talking about the principle of commitment. A word that's lost its meaning. People are not committed to their word. You say, I'll see you at noon. And if you don't show up, you feel no compulsion to call and say, I'm going to be late. And if you are late, you feel no compulsion to call and say, would you forgive me for making you wait? You assume they're going to understand because you live in a society that way. That's not right. But you don't like to have commitments that are binding. Well, God expects commitments that are binding. You see, there are some things that remain, but they're about to die. And they're about to die because we haven't countersunk the nails. When I was putting in some structure in my house in several instances, because I don't trust my carpentry, and I'm not sure I know what I'm doing, I read the book and I do it. I leave the nails out a little bit because I want to go back and read it again next week and see if I want to remove those things. I'm not confident in the results of my work yet. Now, a good carpenter who knows what he's doing, if he's ready to put up the final thing, he puts it in, nails it up, countersinks it, it's over. I, I, I want another shot at this later. I'm just afraid that if I get overcommitted to this thing, that it'll turn out to have been a mistake, and then I can't get the nails out. Some of you live that way. You're so scared to say, Lord God, by your grace, I will die for you. You're scared, well, what if I'm overcommitted? Or what if it turns out the Bible isn't true? Some of you don't even let yourself think this far because you're scared of what you may come up with. Strengthen, establish what little is remaining. Get it nailed down. Take your stand. Stand up and say, I've blown it. I've been asleep on the job. I'm in great danger. But at least today I take my stand for Christ. I want to stake out my claim on Christ. 
I call upon God in the presence of the church to preserve me and straighten me out. I have no other place I want to be and no other God to serve. I'm the Lord's and He's mine. Where is that kind of unreserved commitment in our day? And I'm speaking to a church that could be listed among the few that remain. And in that church, there is an absence of it. There's a fear of making mistakes. Maybe it's because your daddies were on your back all your life and you just, you just got so gun shy you don't want to do anything wrong. I don't know what the reason is, but it's sin. The greatest mistake you'll ever make is to live so as never to make a mistake. You'll never get anything done. I'm not talking about be reckless. I'm just saying, brethren, this shy, fearful, timid approach to life ain't going to get you no place. Except to sleep on the job. Well, there are exceptions to the rule. Oh, the dreadful state of a person who has heard the truth, who knows it, and cannot stir himself to do anything about it. The gospel is no longer a delight. Hell is no longer a dread. And a man knows it. A woman knows it. But he's so dulled off to sleep by his cares in the world that he just can't get up and do anything about it. What a pitiful sight that is. We have a lot of that in our time. In good churches we have that. What about you? As the Lord describes the condition of a church, of a people who have heard, they have received, they know the truth. They have enough insight to know they've got problems. But as the sluggard who will not raise his hand from the dish to his mouth, you simply will not do the things accompanying your peace. The scriptures are filled with commandments like this. Save yourselves from this untoward generation. How do you do that? Oh, wait, I thought salvation was all of God. It is. Well, then why did God say save yourselves? Because you better save yourselves or you're going to perish. But, Pastor, that's not consistent with my theology. Yeah, but it's consistent with your eternal destiny and your, your eternal safety. You don't save yourselves, you perish. I don't understand what you mean. This is double talk. It's biblical talk. And the Lord says save yourselves. How do you do it? Well, first of all, you better get out from among those who are living like this. And I'm not talking about quit your job. Leave your husbands. But you've got to develop in your spirit such a resistance to the way they live and the way they think that every time you hear it and see it, it makes you sick of your stomach. Do not learn to insulate yourself so it doesn't bother you. Brethren, let it keep bothering you. Increase it. Be miserable around sin. Make it, let it become something that makes you long for heaven. But you know what happens if you learn to live in peaceful coexistence with sin and because it's so uncomfortable to have to deal with it all the time, you insulate yourself so it doesn't bother you so much anymore. You won't need heaven so much. Christ won't be so precious to you. And you'll find yourself in comatose condition, barely able to hear the words of one standing over your sickbed saying, Do you hear me? Move a finger if you hear me. Do you hear me? 
You may say, well, if the Lord knows I'm in comatose state, why, can't, why doesn't the Lord wake me up? That's what He's doing right now. Do you hear me? What are you going to do? You heard. You know. I don't need to search any consciences in this room. You know where the Spirit of God puts His finger. You know that it came right to mind. You live with this thing on your mind. You live surrounded by this unmortified sin and you, your whole life is dealing with that thing. You're either worried about it, fretting over it, or trying to get away from it. It's on the brain all the time. You're preoccupied with it, aren't you? The Spirit of God points it out to you. Now maybe some of you are blinded to some of your sin because you've got some other stuff you're paying attention to and you're not giving yourself humbly to the things of God. You're not saying, search me and try me and know my thoughts. You don't want God to have access to you. You, just, you tell God, this far, no further. Don't call me, I'll call you. That's your posture with God. Someday God's not going to call you and His phone's not going to answer. The condition of a person who knows that his state is in danger, who knows the truth, and will not stir himself up to straighten out the mess, is a dreadful condition. How many of you sit in this room tonight and it's been a long-term pattern that you simply don't care anymore about righteous things? The church is something that's maybe a little bit of a habit now, where you are is you don't want to lose it. You're scared. You're scared that God has left. You're scared that you are going to perish. And so that's why you're here tonight. You wouldn't be here if you didn't hope there was some hope for you. Right? But you see, the Lord looks at you and says to you, you strengthen what remains. You stir yourself up. You get off the stick. You get busy with this thing. Don't you sit back and say, I admit I've got problems. I know I've got sins. That's not enough. Repent. Strengthen. Establish. Get yourself stirred. If you know you've received a blow to the head, don't lie down and close your eyes. You may die. Walk. Splash water on your face. Do what it takes to save yourself from the stuff that's drowning you. There's a man that comes to Jesus saying, What must I do to inherit eternal life? sincerely falls at his feet and cries out to him. And the Lord says, one thing you lack, go sell what you have and give it to the poor and come and follow me. The failure of that man to go sell what he had sent him to hell. It wasn't the failure of God in saving. Biblically, my Bible's clear on it, it was the failure of that man to take a, make a simple human transaction of selling his goods, which would have saved his soul. Pastor, is that salvation by works? No. But it never is salvation apart from them. And some of you have things that have a grip on your, on your spiritual throat. And you're barely able to breathe. And you're almost breathing your last. And you have within your own power the ability to move the hands and the grip off. And to get up and get away from it. And you'll keep lying there because somehow there's, you've learned there's a bit of pleasure in the grip. Most of you are old enough already to know that there's nothing at the end of this rainbow you've been chasing. You've had enough of it to know it never does satisfy 
I could list anything this world has to offer, and in some way or another, I've tasted most of it, and it's just not what it's all cracked up to be. It isn't what I'm looking for. I've had it. Most of you have. Your garments are defiled because you've been negligent. You're nigh on death. The Lord is merciful, saying, turn and repent. You have the permission to turn. You're given the opportunity to turn. You're commanded to turn. And there's a great warning waiting upon you if you don't. What will you do? Some of you still hope that somehow you can limp to heaven like a, like a child when God is asking of you to be men. You're hoping that somehow the war will not come near to your village. The enemy will not approach your, your town and won't bomb you. Maybe you can lay on the outskirts of the battle and you can, the, the medics will carry you in on a stretcher and you'll finally make it to heaven without lifting a finger. I tell you, don't bet on it. Find the theology that is biblical in Pilgrim's Progress and bind it to your conscience. The road to heaven is filled with bypaths and pitfalls and dangers and very few make it all the way. The way is compressed and narrow. Few find it. And some enter into the outskirts of it and some get into parts of it. But when the pressure comes, when the afflictions come, when the trouble arises, when radical mortification is called for, they shrink back. Then after the things have blown over, they try to get in again. And then the pressures come because it's the nature of that narrow way to put pressure on. And you keep imagining that somehow you'll enter it one day and there won't be any pressure. It never will be that way. Filled with problems, filled with opposition, filled with terror, filled with pressure. And it's in your hands, brethren. It is in your hands. What will you do to save your soul? Strengthen what little you think is remaining and move it on. Get off your duff. Get business for God. Make a conviction. Make a commitment. Cry to God. Ask for grace. You have not because you have not asked. And if you've been asking the Lord and you don't have it, it's because the Lord is saying you're drawing near to me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. What you're saying with your mouth is not what you truly mean with your heart. You don't really want everlasting blessedness in the presence of God. You want temporary relief from an, from an offended God so you can move on with your pursuit of worlds, the things of the world. That's why you're still frustrated. That is your problem. That's why you're still not making it. And the Lord is being gracious. If you can hear the small voice that's barely able to squeak into your dulled heart, you're dead. But there's enough left that you can get up and save yourselves. Get up. Some of us who bear witness to men on a regular basis and some of us who preach regularly to the souls of men, knowing our own weakness, we would delight in the privilege to be able to come out, come out and impose under your heart the motivation to do what it takes to save yourself. If we could stick it in you, but we can't. But we rest in confidence that God will use the means he's appointed in the preaching of his word to save sinners, to strengthen weak Christians, 
and to set them up in a regular pattern of obedience so that the Lord would never have to say to our church, I find none of your works perfected. You think you're living, but you're dead. May God help us as a church and as individuals not to get to that, to be vigilant, not to have to be wakened out of our sleep. But if, we, if any of us are there, may God have mercy on you and awaken you tonight and free you from your slumber before the enemy comes in and cuts your throat and before the Lord comes and casts you away. Let's pray. Our Father, we have labored feebly and perhaps in a difficult way to make clear to your people that which we in our hearts believe is so near to all of us. Lord, we pray that your spirit now would take this and pursue us to our homes and to our sleep and to our jobs. And, O oh God, in your great mercy and in your kindness and grace and power, would you pursue us unto our lives, not letting us go, Lord. Keep pursuing. Lord, if you quit today, we would have no one at all to blame for our demise but ourselves. Lord, in mercy, stir our hearts tonight to be honest with ourselves and before you and give us the grace to do what we must do to save ourselves from this generation. Lord, our God, use these means you've appointed and utilize your great spirit to our hearts for our eternal good and your eternal glory, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.